Hey there. You're listening to The Urbanist Podcast, and I'm Natalie Argarius. In The Urbanist Podcast, we discuss news, information, and ideas about improving cities and quality of life. And I'm Ray Dubicki. In this week's episode, we talk about everyone's favorite socially distanced sport, golf. And we'll cover a little bit about how the city of Seattle subsidizes the good walk ruined. It's funny, Ray, that you say that it's everybody's favorite socially distanced sport because golf has been declining for a long time. In fact, there are statistics out there saying that between 2003 and 2018, golf lost 6.8 million players in the United States and 1,200 courses closed. I don't think that can be separated from the law, the sports loss of its premier player, Tiger Woods, and the fact that it's a really expensive and time-consuming thing to go do, and everybody is a little bit busier than they probably should be. Despite all that, Macklemore believes that golf can make a comeback, and he's opened a shop in uh, Capitol Hill called Bogey Boys, where if you like, you can buy a cheetah print golf t-shirt. I think they're called golf t-shirts, maybe polo shirt. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm. I think polo shirts go to other games <laughs> with sticks. And... That's true. I yes, polo. I do people play polo? The the Prince of England. Okay. I've, I I've, don't know anybody else. <laughs> I have never seen it. I don't. It doesn't involve a horse. It does involve a horse. the The extent the extent that I know polo is both the little guy on the shirt and watching the crown. Okay, that was a rather long aside, but in any case, Macklemore seems to think golf is on its way back with the opening of his new store, Bogey Boys, right across the street from Glossier in Capitol Hill, which. Every time I walk by it, I'm struck by how much the neighborhood has changed and how it's continuing to change. But it doesn't seem to me like this is a trend that's going to take off. I don't think there's a overwhelming coincidence that Bogey Boys sounds a little closer to Bougie Boys than Macklemore may expect. Despite the fact that there are fewer people playing golf, we have a lot of land dedicated to golf courses in this city. Seattle has four public golf courses throughout town. Um, and if you think about it, this is a direct funding of parks money to support a couple dozen people playing the sport each day. That's something to mull over for a second. The, the other issue is that we're locked into having these courses because of Initiative 42, which prevents the city from being able to change park land without being able to offer an inclined replacement in the same area. So in theory, as long as we have Initiative 42 on the books, we have to replace a golf course with another golf course in the same neighborhood. I keep looking at Initiative 42 and think this was set up in order to preserve a baseball field in one of the neighborhoods 20 years ago. And that was a laudable goal. But to be honest, it's not a death pact. We should be able to change over some of our neighborhood park uses to something that better fits the neighborhood today. 
And I don't see how golf actually fits in uh, facing a climate crisis, in facing a housing affordability crisis. These things don't go together. It's green space that's surrounded by a fence. And in addition to that, it's green space that's maintained with chemicals. Seattle Parks has taken steps to be more environmentally responsible in its stewardship of these courses. But the fact of the matter is, even if you remove the chemicals, you have all the water that it takes to maintain them. And the landscaping and the lawnmowers. And it is an enormous undertaking to keep this tidy little patch of green, well, tidy. A while back, I wrote an article about how Seattle Parks tried to claim that their golf courses were serving as valuable wildlife habitat, and they even had a picture of a coyote out on a course. And all I could think was, poor coyote, you have some trees that you can scamper around in, but in front of you is a huge swath of grass in which you're not going to find any food, you're not going to be able to take shelter, you will simply have to run through it before you get on to your next destination. Hundreds of trees shaped like lollipops and a whole bunch of people with sticks. I'm sure the coyote found it a completely agreeable place to hang out. And really hard balls (laughs) that travel really fast through the air and hurt when they make contact. (laughs) You must have been watching me play golf because I shank it so far to the right. It's terrible. I've always questioned why people would want to live next to a golf course. If I lived next to a golf course, I would be in constant fear of a shattered window or stepping outside to enjoy the day and then suddenly get hit in the back with a really hard object. I think it is one of those things where it's like, oh, you are guaranteed to have a locked-in view forever and ever. So, sure, if death comes from above at 90 miles an hour... It's a trade-off for a picturesque and well-manicured green space that very limited people can access right in your backyard. We've talked a bit about the public courses, but there are private courses in Seattle as well. Two notable ones, Sandpoint and Broadmoor. Back in 2020, Paul Chapman wrote an excellent article for The Urbanist called It's Time to End Public Subsidies of Golf Courses. And in it, he pointed out that these courses are receiving an approximate $1.2 million annual tax subsidy. Why are, why are we subsidizing and how are we subsidizing these courses, Ray? Well, I, having listened in on the King County tax assessor's discussion of this, there's a couple things going on. The tax assessor had a consultant review the way the county assesses these uh, spaces. And the assessor's consultant said, oh, you're doing a pretty good job. That's comparable to what everybody else is doing across the country. That's not really a justification. Doing the same thing that everybody else is doing doesn't say you're doing the right thing. If I remember correctly, this particular tax assessor was comparing the land in Broadmoor and Sandpoint with land that was far outside of the city of Seattle. A hundred percent agricultural, way out, unusable type of land. The consultant found some of the cheapest land in King County and said, yeah, that's exactly the thing that you can compare it to. And they did it for a very specific reason. And it's because Broadmoor and Sandpoint have in their deeds 
a connection between the land in the golf course and the land under the the houses that make up the community. So when the tax assessor looks at that, they are seeing that, well, the community is being taxed at this amount and it has gone up because of the golf around it. But there's nothing that has ever been shown that that is proportional, that the land that is not being used for golf is suppressed to the same amount that the golf houses are increased. Okay, so I want to make sure that I understand this correctly. What you're saying is that the presence of the golf course has increased the value of the taxable parcels, which are the land that the houses sit on. And so from the tax assessor's point of view, that makes up for the fact that the land of the course itself is assigned such a low value. That is absolutely correct. It is a novelty balloon, where if you squeeze one end of the balloon flat, in theory, the other end should get proportionately larger. But there's elasticity between these two things. There is no way that the houses are going to be able to go up at a rate that compensates the city for how much we are subsidizing the neighboring golf courses. Part of that is the fact that our property taxes are capped. And so there are limitations in terms of how much that amount could go up. Right. I'm also struck by the fact that it it seems to make the assumption that the golf course land couldn't be used for something else and that that other use couldn't be of a comparable or even higher value. This is just another example of restrictive covenants written into 80-year-old deeds that go on and on about controlling the way we build the city decades and decades later. There's a particular reason why we get so concerned about the presence of golf courses in this city. One golf course in particular right now and another farther down the line. Uh, Line's a particularly useful word because it is the light rail line that we're talking about, where in the north end of Seattle, Jackson Park is going to have two light rail stations, one at the northwest corner, one at the southwest corner, installed and opening in the next two years. In West Seattle, the Avalon Station will be immediately adjacent to the West Seattle Golf Course. These are monumental public investments that are being hampered in their ability to serve people in the future by the presence of these golf courses. The utility of the light rail is so being drained by having a quarter of each of these station walk areas taken up by just green fields. And it's not just green fields. They are fenced and they are restricted. And in order to get around them, you are left with a very narrow walkway. That is true. If you take some time to walk the Jackson Park Perimeter Trail, you will experience this yourself. And how much land are we actually talking about here? Jackson Park's 160 acres. They have a golf course and a half, so 18 holes plus another nine hole. Uh, And then they have a driving range. It seems to me that... 18 holes would suffice, 
perhaps a driving range only would suffice, particularly when we talk about being so close to light rail. This goes back to that Initiative 42, where we are restricted in making any changes to public parks because they have to be replaced in kind and in neighborhood and in size. We can't turn to these green spaces and say, you only have a couple dozen visitors each day. We want to put housing nearby and we will put a grand central park down the middle that's going to get used by tens of thousands of people more. Looking to the future, it's amazing to see the difference between what will lie north of 145th Street in Shoreline and what will be to the south. Natalie, you wrote a big article about Shoreline's work in uh, setting up land uses uh, right close to their stations. Are they doing a pretty good job? They're doing a better job than Seattle. They're definitely being more ambitious about zoning for density. And you can see over time that for Shoreline, this station is important. They are going to have two light rail stations come into their city, one at 145th, the other at 185th. Shoreline sees this as a chance to basically create a new paradigm within the city, create some neighborhoods that can be walkable, that can be close to transit. They have not been perfect. Reporter Ryan Packer wrote a really interesting article that has attracted a lot of attention. And this article gets into how 145th, which is a state highway during the stretch that goes through this area between Interstate 5 and Lake City Way, will be widened. So it will be a highway widening project. There are some multimodal improvements that will come with this, including a pedestrian and bike bridge over the interstate. But there is reason to be concerned about that highway widening element. As a whole, however, Shoreline has invested a lot more time into planning a new neighborhood around this light rail station than Seattle has. And a major reason why is the presence of the Jackson Park golf course. That 145th Street acting as the northern boundary of the city really kind of leaves the leaves that area dangling because the city has spent so much effort just down the line on the brand new Northgate opening and on stations that are a little further in. But Jackson Park taking up so much of the area around those two stations, it becomes almost understandable that the city pushes them by the wayside, even though it is billions of dollars in new transit infrastructure. So, Ray, what could we do about this? How could we resolve this issue? Buy Macklemore shirts? My, my thought is this. What if we were to offer up an amendment to Initiative 42 that would go before the public and that would spell out some changes to it? In particular, changes that would make it possible to take land like golf courses, which 
Yes, they are public parks, but are they truly serving all of the public? No, they're not. And yes, do they create green space, but is that green space actually contributing to the health of the environment of our city? No, it's not, unfortunately. And so what we could do is, you know, reconsider their use and perhaps add the amendment that if there's a higher and better purpose that they can be applied for, then that possibility gets opened up. One of the hardest parts to read in that initiative 42 is it uses the word and. It uses, it says, parks have to be replaced in kind and in place and in size. And if we just change that to the word or, to say serving as many people in the same vicinity with potentially different uses, love to see it as a soccer field, love to see it as um a walking area where you're not stuck between a highway and a giant steel fence. A pea patch. A pea patch. Wouldn't that be grand? I really like this idea of just changing one word because it opens up so many possibilities. There are neighborhoods of Seattle that are lacking in park space. And taking something like the Jackson Park golf course and then transforming it into other parks and natural preservation areas throughout the city might reap so many more benefits for so many people. There are plenty of examples where other cities have been able to use owned land to fund redevelopment elsewhere. Um, We could go further with changing Initiative 42 to, say, include um, public development, cooperative housing, things along those lines, that it would make it easier to allow these types of uses on the land. But in reality, right now, it takes a act of city council and hearings and everything else to even allow for a commercial use on the bathhouse down at Golden Gardens, because Initiative 42 stands in the way of reasonable government action. I think I know what the future of golf is, at least in cities. What is the future of golf in cities? Not very far from Bogey Boys in Seattle is a place where people can take their $100 cheetah print golf shirts and go golfing. It's called Five Iron Golf, and it's in Capitol Hill. I'll tell you, I'm a sucker for going to the driving range at Inner Bay. Um, It's... 11 bucks for a bucket of balls and a half hour later, and there's a whole lot less stress. But yeah, it's a smaller, more reasonable footprint. Golf can be indoors. It can be outdoors. And if it were up to me, we might have a bit more mini golf going on in the city as well. I'm 100% for mini golf. I would love mini golf on the roof of parking garages. That would be so much fun and such a better use of that space. I want to see Smash Putt come back. The last time that it was in operation, there was a big to-do about how it was the final run. It was not coming back, but I think that it could find a new incarnation. There is a special use that they have for the ballpark, T-Mobile Park, over the winter where they will allow people to go out and use it as a driving range for a little while. It's like, that sounds great. 
perfectly reasonable use for the ballpark and people can get their their uh, driving track practice in. It seems to me as well that when we have these smaller spaces that are devoted to multiple uses and that are actually located near where lots of people live, you can really get people enjoying them in a way that we're not seeing right now with these golf courses. A hundred percent. We pick on golf courses in the city because playing the game of golf is so exclusive. It is so hard to get yourself set up and it is so, it takes up so much land. More people would probably end up playing golf if we had them closer to where they actually lived instead of in these exclusive fenced compounds. Thank you, Ray, for talking to me a bit about, you know, a sport that has an important role in our society, but could be could be existing differently. Well, I'm off to the 19th hole. Thank you for listening. I'm Natalie Argarius. And I'm Ray Dubicki. This has been the Urbanist Podcast. Make sure to check out our online publication at www.theurbanist.org. And if you're irritated at everything that we just talked about or are a giant golf fan, please email us at podcast at theurbanist.org. We look forward to hearing from you.